Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As you may know, we're in a new series on the epistle of 1 John. Today is part two. We're going to look today again at the prologue, the first four verses of of the epistle of 1 John, which we started last time about two weeks ago. So if you missed missed it two weeks ago, I encourage you to pull it up. It is up now on our YouTube channel as well as on our our website, uh, EC uh, Etzchayim YouTube and our uh, Etzchayim ECDallas.com website. So uh, let's start with 1 John chapter 1, beginning beginning in verse 1, chapters 1, uh, verses 1 to 4. There we go. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this is what we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. We, we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. We write this to make our joy complete. Hallelujah. Another, another fascinating translation by a modern scholar, 1 John 1, 1 on the overhead, is as follows. The word which gives life. He existed from the beginning. We've heard him. We've seen him with our eyes. We, we've contemplated him. We've touched him with our hands. Now, on, on the overhead, uh, note the similarities of this with John's prologue uh, from John's gospel. The word which gives life existed which existed from the beginning, is Yeshua. Now, the Greek term used here for the word uh, is the logos. Uh, But rather than drawing upon the often assumed uh, Greek Hellenistic use of this term, as almost all Christian commentators do, we need to realize that John was a Jew. And as we discussed last time, his understanding of this term is actually rooted in Jewish sources and Jewish thought, and in particular in the Jewish Aramaic Targums, these translations of the Hebrew Scriptures known as the Targums. And as we discussed last time, there's a fascinating quote from this biblical scholar, John Running, on the overhead, and he says this. uh, in, In hundreds of cases in the Targums, where the Hebrew text refers to God, the corresponding Targum refers to the divine word, or the Memra in Aramaic. Thus, when the Masoretic text says, God did this, God did that, the Aramaic Targum says the memory of the word of God did this or did that. God acts through his divine word. Considered against this backdrop, calling Yeshua the word is John's way of identifying him with the God of Israel. Wow. Another very well-known biblical scholar, Daniel Bayarin, uh, he likens John's prologue to early Midrash uh, and proposes this and on the overhead. He says, uh, it's conceivable to see John's prologue together with its Logos doctrine as a Jewish text through and through rather than, as it's often been read, as a Hellenized corruption of Judaism. According to Boyarin, Logos theology was commonly held by all Jews, Jews of all stripes, not just Messianic Jews. Uh, he defines this term uh, as follows on the overhead. 
He says, this is the doctrine, this doctrine of the member of the logos of the word. It's a doctrine that between God and his world, there's a second divine entity, God's word, logos or memra, which who mediates between the fully transcendent Godhead and the material world. To see how thoroughly biblical and Jewish is the core doctrine of the deity of Messiah, the word made flesh. Uh, now, uh, in reaction against Yeshua, the rabbis eventually rejected the deity of the Messiah. So on the overhead, Boyarin writes this, uh, but there's no reason to imagine that rabbinic Judaism ever became the popular hegemonic form of Judaism in Israel. Rather, the Yavna development evolved over time. So what he's saying is this, uh, that both biblical Judaism and Messianic Jews embraced the deity of the Messiah, embedded in the concept of the memro, the word of God, acting in a separate but nonetheless divine capacity, mediating God's presence uh, on the earth, God the Father's presence on the earth. Uh, But rabbinic Judaism, he says, uh, in reaction against this new messianic movement, uh, began to reject this previously thoroughly Jewish concept, this doctrine of the deity of the Messiah. Uh, But this rejection was at first just a minority view uh, in Second Temple Judaism, and only slowly took over, over time, in much the same way as the Catholic Church slowly developed uh, its own non-biblical theology over time. Uh, as it moved away from its biblical Jewish roots. So, on the overhead, Messianic Judaism is, is therefore biblical Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism evolved in reaction to and rejection of Messianic Judaism and, and, and ironically became a type of replacement theology. So, so on, on the next overhead, uh, Rabbinic Judaism replaced the priesthood with the rabbis, replaced the temple with the yeshivas, uh, the study halls, and replaced the ascendancy of the Torah uh, with the oral Torah, the oral law. So to summarize, the Jewish Targums used the word memory, the, the, the word word, uh, interchangeably with God in the Aramaic texts. Uh, all, this happened all through the second century uh, AD. So memory was not a mere name, but an actual divine entity functioning as a mediator. That's why Yeshua is called the Logos, the member of the word, the Devar. Over time, the rabbis slowly rejected this biblical memra Logos theology because it became associated with Messianic Judaism. This rejection became, an, became the ultimate touchstone of what later became known as Rabbinic Judaism. Now, let's look at this backdrop, kind of heavy, heavy theological backdrop. Let's look again at John, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. The... Uh, the word which gives life, eternal life. Eternal life is not merely Yeshua's gift to you. It's his presence among you and within you. This is why we need to believe uh, and trust in Yeshua in order to have life. Why? Since believing means coming to him. It means loving him. It means remaining with him. When we draw near to Yeshua, we're drawing near to life itself. This identification of Yeshua with eternal life is linked directly to his deity. To draw near to Yeshua, therefore, is to draw near to God. To draw near, and to draw near to God is to have life. Look at John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua, the Messiah, whom you've sent. 
on the overhead. Look how uh, theologian, listen to this theologian, how N.T. Wright, how he puts it. He says, through Yeshua's incarnation, God has provided an advanced display of the future age to come, the Olam Haba. The future has now burst into the present. The word for this future is life. Life as it was meant to be. Life in its full, vibrant meaning. Of course, the very idea of God's new life becoming a person and stepping forward out of the future into the present is so enormous. It's so breathtaking. Yes, repeats John. We heard him. We touched him. Uh, This from the beginning life. We knew him. We were his friends. Wow. Notice the physical language John is using here. We heard, we saw, we contemplated, we touched him. He's saying that he and the other disciples didn't experience Yeshua just metaphysically, you know, as in some kind of dream or vision or apparition, but tangibly. He says, oh, we ate with him, we cried with him, we traveled with him, we lived life with him. John says, I was an eyewitness to Yeshua's life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. And John is now writing this letter, why? So that you may have this eternal life. Look at 1 John 5.13. He says, why do I write this letter? He says, I write these things to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, when John describes those who believe in Yeshua, he means those who are born of God, who are partakers of the divine nature, who are born again from above, uh, born of the Spirit, a new creation. He's referring to those who are of God children of God, related to the Lord in this intimate sense, receivers of his very life and nature. Here then is the question, in light of all this, the question John wants you to ask yourself. Do you know that you're of God? Do you know that God has done something in your life to transform you? Do you know that this divine life within you from God Are you aware of the new man that's now in you? One that's entirely different from your old man uh, that you were by nature. Are you aware of something about you that can only be explained in terms of God? Wow. And why is this so important? Because as John is going to detail throughout this letter, it's easy to be deceived. Indeed, hell will be full of people who are baptized, who are immersed. Hell will be full of people who didn't drink and didn't smoke and didn't curse and didn't have sex outside of marriage. There will be millions of people in hell who can make every one of these claims. Because not one of these things makes you a Yeshua follower. But when asked if they're a born-again believer, millions say yes. Why? Because I prayed that prayer the preacher led me in, and I walked the aisle, and they told me that I've now entered the kingdom of heaven. And I wrote down on my Bible my name and that date where my name name was sealed in the Lamb's Book of Life. No, I'm not living like a Christian or a Messianic Jew. I don't really care that much about Yeshua or, or his kingdom. But I said those words, and they're legally binding, and I'm his. No. Now, Yeshua says this 
in Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. In our own epistle, 1 John 2, verse 19, John says, they went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. Why did they leave? Because John says they weren't of us. They weren't really born-again believers. Then he goes on to say in that same verse, for if they had been of us, they would have remained. That's an evidence of salvation, remaining faithful to the end. Not just, not just a one-time repentance and a one-time belief, but continuing to repent and continuing to believe and continuing to walk with the Lord, staying on the narrow way, staying on the path, the derech. Millions are deceived by this so-called sinner's prayer because it's treated like some magic formula, by the way, found nowhere in the Bible, that gives people a false sense of assurance regardless of how they live their life. But Yeshua says you will know them by their fruits. Matthew twelve thirty three, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. A tree is recognized as known by its fruit. In the same way, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. The sinner's prayer is nowhere in the Bible. Yeshua did not proclaim, the kingdom of God is at hand. Who who would now would like to ask me into their hearts? I see that hand. (laughs) No, that's not what he said, right? (laughs) He said this, repent and believe the gospel. Look at uh, Mark 1, verse 15. The time has come, the machut hashemayim, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. But instead... Countless people today are trusting in the fact that one time they prayed a prayer and someone told them they were saved because they were sincere when they prayed that prayer. So if you ask them, are you saved? They don't say, yes, I am, because I'm looking solely unto Yeshua. And there's clear evidence in my life of me being a new creation, uh, giving me assurance that I am truly born again. No. Instead, they say, one time in my life, I prayed a prayer. And, and, and yet, they continue to live like the world. They continue to live like devils. So they're led to repeat this canned prayer uh, that someone else composed. And the preacher tells them that based on these words, you're now saved. And the tragedy is, if they're still unconverted, they're now deceived uh, about their salvation. And it's, re- and it's reinforced in their life this lack of true saving faith. And then years later, when they ought to be on their faces before the Lord, remember both John and Paul say, test yourself. See if you be in the faith. Uh, So years later, when they ought to be broken uh, and repentant and saying, yes, Lord, I prayed that prayer years ago, but I I was manipulated. Uh, There was no real repentance in my life. There was no genuine born-again experience. I did not become a new creation who started living a new life. So, Lord, I need to cry out to you and confess, Lord, I'm not yours, but now I really want to be. Yeah, I've been going to shul. I've been going through the motions, but there was no regeneration. Your spirit was not indwelling me and changing me. Lord, I now see I was not on that narrow road. I was on the broad road, trying to convince myself that I was a believer. Please forgive me, Yeshua. 
uh, uh, please forgive me. Yeshua, receive me now. But a confession like this rarely happens. Why? Why not? Because whenever you, you start to feel convicted, you simply go back to your Bible and you open it up to that page where you wrote your name and you point to that date. And you remember that on that day you prayed that sinner's prayer and therefore you were saved. The preacher told you, as long as you were sincere, well, your name was written now in the Lamb's Book of Life that day. So therefore, there's no need for you to fall on your face now and repent before a holy God crushed under the weight of your sin. Because your salvation, according to this view, is not about endurance. Your salvation is not about the fruit of a changed life. Your salvation is not about turning from sin and worldliness and self-focus and turning to Yeshua and walking in newness of life in the spirit of Messiah. No. This view says your salvation is just about these magic words that you said at some service years ago. Do you see how destructive this is? Yet this is what often passes today for the gospel. And so when a pastor assures you that if you've simply said these words, you're now in the family of God, how does he know? How can he say that? On what basis is he giving you that assurance? Certainly not, not a biblical basis. Because you can say these words every day for the rest of your life and die and go to hell. There are two gates. There are two paths. There are two crowds. And here's the problem. Part of that broad road crowd is a group of people who go to church or synagogue every week and use very familiar biblical language. And they have no idea they're on this broad road leading straight to hell. Why not? Because someone guaranteed them one day in the past that they're on this narrow road leading to life based on this prayer that they prayed. So they're now strolling merrily along this broad road. And then every once in a while, they get a glimpse of that other road, uh, that hard road, that, that narrow path, which not many people are on. And the preacher then assures them, no, 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 don't worry. Uh, it, it's the same path you're on, really. Uh, these are just the super committed people. These are just the, the fanatical people. Don't worry about them. They take things way too seriously. You're on the right road. Just look how many people are on the road with you. <laughs> There's tens and thousands coming to our mega church, and hundreds walk in the aisle every month to pray this prayer. How could we be on the broad road if we have all of this success? How can we be wrong? Because God is blessing our ministry. But is that the measure of God's success? And the problem is, once you pray this prayer, this magic prayer, the validity of which, or the, or the, or the reality of your conversion is never questioned anymore. It's never challenged. And you're admonished, in fact, by the preacher, never to question or challenge or test or examine it. So what happens in a typical congregation? The kids are gathered in the kids' class, and they're asked, how many of you love Yeshua? And they all say, oh, I do. And how many of you would like to go to heaven when you die? Oh, oh, I will. I would. And how many of you would like to repeat this prayer with me? And they all do. And they're all baptized. They're all immersed. But the problem is, when they become teenagers, all of a sudden they start to rebel uh, uh, and live in sin and impurity uh, and immorality. And then maybe years later when they're married and have kids, they quote-unquote rededicate their life to the Lord. 
and begin attending Shabbat services again, having just enough public morality to dim their conscience and send them straight to hell. And when little Yitzhak, he wanders off the path, starts sleeping with his girlfriend, uh, taking drugs, selling drugs, his parents come to him and they say, Yitzhak, you're a Yeshua follower, remember? You need to stop living this this way. But instead, what they should have said is this, something like this. You made a profession of faith in Yeshua years ago. And for a while, it seemed like you were walking with him. But now you've turned away from the faith. And you've proved that possibly you never knew him at all. Repent. Believe the gospel. Flee from the wrath to come. That's what his parents should should say. And here's another problem with the sinner's prayer. What type of gospel presentation even led up to saying this prayer? What, what, what sin was preached? Was sin, even, was sin even preached? And the need for repentance? Was the person and the work of Yeshua clearly laid out? Was the need to acknowledge him as Lord, meaning both that he's the Lord God and that he's Lord of your life? Was that preached? If there's been no clear gospel presentation, what are they responding to when they pray the sinner's prayer? And to what Yeshua are they believing in? Because you can pray this prayer all day. But if there's no fruit in your life of regeneration, of true new birth, then what you, when, when you pray this prayer, you were deceived. And it gave you a false sense of security. Thereby inoculating you from the real thing. So you need to ask yourself, do I know who this Yeshua is to whom I prayed? Did you pray the prayer just because you want to avoid hell? And this prayer seemed like a pretty good deal. Or because the Holy Spirit has brought you to a place of conviction and brokenness over your sin? Did you confess your sin and repent? Did you turn from it? Or were you merely looking for fire insurance and you got caught up in the moment, but there was no true renunciation of your former way of life? You can sincerely pray the sinner's prayer for a lot of different reasons, not all of which lead to salvation. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, in the overhead, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. You see, in Matthew 7, Yeshua says there's not only an entrance, but there's also a road, a way, a life to be lived. He says this in Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is broad and the road is, is wide that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But, this, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Unfortunately, many today proclaimed a watered-down version of the gospel that leads out this narrow way of truth. They're trying to, trying to make it sound so easy to enter the kingdom of heaven through a form of, of cheap grace. Uh, an easy believism that requires no repentance, no brokenness, no lordship of Yeshua over your life. But Paul says this in Galatians 1 verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than that which we preach to you, let them be accursed. Yeshua says the entrance gate to heaven is small and the way is narrow. So much so that only a few find it. 
But that's not the gospel we hear today in our culture from the seeker-friendly churches who instead preach all about you having health and wealth and your best life now. In fact, there's a very influential leader who says, all you have to do is pray this prayer. Yeshua, I believe in you, I receive you. And if you prayed that prayer and meant it, welcome to the family of God. Believe it or not, that is actually the gospel presentation from this book called The Purpose Driven Life. On the overhead, notice what's missing from this presentation. No repentance. No real gospel of Yeshua's atonement of your sins. No mention of sin at all. No mention of the wrath of God. Just believe and receive. But what are they believing in? And what are they receiving? Notice how different this is from what Yeshua preached. This is what Yeshua preached. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Yeshua began to preach, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The purpose-driven life will never tell you this, but you are a wretched, miserable sinner who deserves hell. And unless you repent of your sin, and unless you're aware that you rebelled against a holy God and deserve his wrath, and not only the death and resurrection of Yeshua, but him taking on the Father's wrath on your behalf, and by you surrendering your life to him, can you ever be saved? Unless you're aware of that and you acknowledge that, you don't get it. But you will not hear this much today anymore in Christian churches and even in in Messianic Jewish synagogues. Rather, you're simply told to believe in Yeshua. But which Yeshua? Most so-called gospel presentations don't explain who he is or what he's done. Now, here's a question. What if I believe in lowly Yeshua, meek and mild, who had never heard a flea? Who Who would never send anyone to hell? If I believe in that Yeshua, who's found nowhere in the Bible, is that good enough? Can I be saved by trusting in that Yeshua? No. The truth is, you are bent towards your own will. I am bent towards my own will. People today believe that they deserve Yeshua's salvation, that they're actually worthy of it. But you, by nature, want to follow your own own life and your own path, and then you want God to bless it. Now, on the overhead, most people in America who claim the name of Yeshua simply want him to be an appendage on their self-centered life, not an eradication of it. But that's not the gospel. So we need to see the test that John lays out for us here in 1 John so that we won't be deceived, but we'll have true assurance of our standing with God. Now, my, my holy brothers and sisters of Etzchayim, this is basic. This is absolutely fundamental. Believers are those who've called, who've called out of the, this, this present age of darkness, this present evil age, have been translated into God's kingdom of light. So First John is a very practical letter. It's meant to aid and encourage and establish you in Messiah that your joy may be complete. What do we need so that we can have this joy? The first thing John says it's absolutely essential, uh, is, is, the, uh, is, the, is the centrality of Yeshua himself. John starts his whole epistle with this description of Yeshua. Look at it again, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which is from the beginning, which we've heard and seen with our eyes, and looked on and touched with our hands, and hand, we've handled this, this word of life, for the life was manifested. We've seen it, we bear witness to it, and now we show it unto you. It's eternal life which is with the Father. It was manifested unto us that we have seen and heard and declared to you that you also may have fellowship with us. 
And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. And these things will be right to you, that your joy may be full. John says, you'll never know this joy until you know Yeshua. Because he's the source of our joy. He's the fount of all blessing. Everything good comes through him. And then John says, it's not enough just to believe on Yeshua. In order to have fullness of joy, you must have conscious fellowship with God. God abiding in him, him abiding in you. John says, you will never know this supernatural joy unless you have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Now, John says there are certain things that will break that fellowship and stand in the way of this fellowship. So on the overhead, first of all, he says there's sin, unrighteousness, both acts of sin and refusal to acknowledge and confess your sin. First John 1 John 1.9, but if you, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the overhead, secondly, he says that uh, in chapters 2 and 3 here of the epistle, he says, fellowship with the Lord is broken if we don't love our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. If we have resentment against our brothers and sisters, if we have bitterness in our hearts, if we have unforgiveness against them, if there's something wrong in, in your relationship with your believing brothers and sisters, you will lose this joy and this fellowship with God. So you have to keep short accounts. And then the overhead, and third, the third thing that blocks your fellowship with God is if you love the world. If you desire the lusts and the pleasures of this world and its whole sinful mentality, you cannot mix light and darkness. You cannot mix God and evil. So if you love the world, you lose your fellowship with God and you lose your joy. And then fourth and finally, John says, if you lose your fellowship with God, if you embrace false teachings about who Yeshua is. Why? Since the only way to God the Father is through Yeshua the Messiah. If you're wrong in your beliefs about who Yeshua is, this will sever your communion with God. Now, John doesn't just discuss these four hindrances to fellowship with God. He also says it's a great source of comfort and strength for you to resist and to overcome these hindrances. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your advocate uh, who opens your eyes to all these things, who forewarns you and shows you how to get release and deliverance. Now John opens his epistle by saying he has something to declare, something to say to you. He and the apostle has seen the Lord and they're reporting on it. And it's so wonderful that John can, can barely contain himself. Uh, it's a proclamation with urgency uh, and authority behind it. It comes with the very authority of the apostles themselves, an authority of eyewitness testimony. We've seen, we've heard, we've touched. And what's John's message? John says, I have the most amazing, the most unbelievable thing that a man can ever say. The word of life was made flesh and dwelt among us. He was manifested to us. We've heard it. We've seen him. We've looked upon him. We've investigated. We've watched and beheld We've looked upon Yeshua in amazement and have really examined. Our very hands have touched and handled the word of life. Thomas put his hands into the wounds on Yeshua's resurrected body. John saw Messiah's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, shining brighter than the noonday sun. This is the gospel message. Messiah leaves eternity with the Father, comes into time and space, 
takes on your and my sins and dies for us and goes back to eternity to prepare a place for you. John says, God himself came to earth. We had the privilege of seeing him, of hearing him, of touching him. God in the flesh, the Son of God, was among us, and it changed everything. He came, John says, not only to reveal eternal life, but to impart it to us, to make it possible for us to enter into it with him. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that we might become sons of God. He is the word of life. The life was manifested and we walked with him, John says. And John says, now we're, we're, we're supposed to test our experience as messianic believers. Indeed, the whole purpose of the epistle of 1 John is to enable you to do so. John says, we were eyewitnesses. We saw, we handled, we touched, we heard. Yeshua spoke to us. He breathed his Holy Spirit upon us. We received the Spirit from him. Now, he says, I want you, the reader of my epistle, to share our joy and to enter into the same life-transforming experience. And the overhead. This is why every true revival is a return to first-century Jewish roots of the faith. Every awakening that takes place is a return of the body of Messiah to that which is described in the book of Acts. It's a return to the life of Yeshua that John and the other apostles experienced. Our greatest need here in the 21st century, therefore, is to have the experience of the first century. To experience, Yeshua, the word of life. And this experience of new life in Messiah, it can be tested and examined, John says. That's why he says, he says test the spirits. And this experience of new life that every true believer has is to some degree a repetition of the apostolic experience. Why? Because it's based on the same truth. And the result is the same gift of new life from the same giver, Yeshua. And therefore, it's an experience you can test. You can examine your own life. And it's the way to safeguard yourself against false teaching and false mysticism and false assurance. Chant says, what we've seen, we declare to you. This experience of Chaim by Yeshua, of life in Yeshua. He says, it's as possible for you as it was for us. Now, you've not seen him. We saw him. But you can have the same experience through the spirit of Messiah dwelling within you. So what is this experience? John says it's nothing less than fellowship with God himself and with his son, Yeshua the Messiah. It's to know God. 1 John 1 verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. This experience is to know God and the overhead. So this is the question. Do you know God? And has this intimate experiential knowledge yet now given you a passion to share it with others so that they too may know it? Do you know what it means when the scriptures talk about the new man and the old man? And have you experienced this transformation? This is an experience that's concrete and can be tested and examined. And this experience of knowing the Father and the Son, indeed, John makes it clear that one can only know the Father through the Son. This is the, the Latin calls the sonum bonum. This is the ultimate desire of the believer's life. And the overhead, 
this is the whole object. Uh, the ultimate goal of all messianic experience and all messianic endeavor for every Yeshua follower. This beyond question is the central message of the gospel and of messianic faith. Life in Messiah is fellowship, is communion with God himself. Nothing less. So yes, of course, we must hold correct views and doctrines on the core elements of the faith, but that's not the essence of the believer's life. Rather, it's to have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Yeshua the Messiah. Let me put it like this. To believe your sins are forgiven by the death and resurrection of Yeshua is not enough. To be sound on the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not enough. Many people hold orthodox opinions and yet are not saved. The essence of being a Yeshua follower is that you can honestly say... Truly, my fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. And this brings us face to face with the question, what then does fellowship mean? What does it represent? And the overhead. To be in a state of fellowship means we share in things. We're partakers. A Yeshua follower was one who has become a sharer in the life of God. Yeah, I know this sounds staggering, but that's what the scriptures tell us. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 4. Whereby are given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Indeed, the whole doctrine of regeneration, uh, of rebirth, it leads to this. Born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. These phrases all carry the same idea. This is what John is trying to impress upon your hearts and your minds. That as Messianic believers, we're not merely people who are now a little bit better than we were once before. No, not because we've added some, some, hopeful, some helpful things in our life. No. Rather, if you're in Messiah, you now have received the divine life. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Messiah, and I no longer live, but Messiah lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the overhead, fellowship with God is that you are partakers of his nature and are partners with him. You're sharers in his interests, in his great purposes. So if you're a believer, that means you love the things God loves and you hate the things God hates. You're grieved by the sin of the world. You're grieved by your own sin. You share in God's thoughts, his enterprises, his interest in life and in the world. Fellowship means communion. It means interaction. It means conversation. Sharing together, talking together, spending time with one another. A believer has fellowship with God. Communion with the Lord. On the overhead, it means you've come to know God. God is no longer some stranger up in heaven. He's no longer some impersonal energy or force or power somewhere out in the universe. He's no longer also some aloof and unapproachable potentate or lawgiver far removed and away from you. No, God is now someone you personally know. John says the believer is one who has come to know God. Romans 8, 15. The spirit you received... What about your adoption, the sonship? And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
by the spirit of adoption, by the spirit of Messiah, you come to know God in this intimate way, so much so that you now can address him as Abba, Father. Why? Because you are now his child. It means you delight in the Lord. Uh, You have joy in his presence uh, on the overhead. So so these are some of the tests, uh, John says. Ask yourself, test yourself, examine yourself. Do I know the Lord in this way? Do I have fellowship with him? Meaning communion with him, conversation with him. Do I love the things he loves? Do I hate the things he hates? Am I grieved by my sin and repent and flee from it? Do I view and personally sense God as my Abba Father? Do I delight in him? Do I run daily to him? Do I rejoice in his presence? Am I filled with his spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord? Making music and melody in my heart to the Lord? Am I giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Yeshua the Messiah? And in addition, having communion with the Lord means you desire to speak with him and now have the ability to do so. Now, let's be honest. You have difficulty in prayer. Pour your heart out like water to the Lord. Pour it out. It's not difficult to talk to someone you're in love with, right? When you love someone, you don't struggle to make conversation. It flows freely, like water. You love that person. Uh, Let's say it's your spouse. and Everything is stimulated. You can't wait to be in their presence or to talk with them. This is characteristic of true fellowship and communion. This is what our prayer life should be like with the Lord. Not rote, not dry, but exciting, alive, full of life and anticipation and motivation and thanksgiving and joy. True fellowship with the Lord means you desire, you delight in speaking with him and having a desire to praise him and to worship him. And the overhead, if you love someone, you want to tell them so. To tell them how much you love them. It's exactly the same way with the Lord Yeshua. If you're truly in relationship with him, you will spontaneously and unashamedly praise him. You will not come to God just because you want something. No, you will enjoy coming to him just because of who he is. And and to bask in his presence. As a child of God, you'll know he's there and you'll sense his presence. It's one of the best ways to test whether you're truly in fellowship and communion with the Lord, is to examine your prayer life. Ask yourself, how much prayer life is in my life? How often do I pray? Do I find freedom in prayer? Do I delight in prayer? Or is prayer a wearisome task? Is it drudgery? Is it rote and routine and repetitious? Read the Psalms. See how much the psalmist loved prayer. To them, it was the supreme thing. If you're walking with Yeshua, he's going to create within you these holy desires and these longings for prayer and for communion with him. Look at Philippians 2.13. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. On the overhead, if you're walking with Yeshua, you will sense a surging in your soul of these holy desires for communion with the Lord. And you'll say, it's the Lord. You'll say, it's the Lord speaking to me. It's the Lord calling forth a response from my soul to him. We love him because he first loved us. And not only that, but now he reveals his will to you. He shows you what he'd have you to do. 
He leads you. He speaks to you. He opens doors for you. He shuts others. You're aware of the fact that you're in his hands, that he's dealing with you. Truly, certainly, astoundingly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. Enoch, he walked with God. And as believers, so should we. We should go daily to him, speaking to him, knowing he's there speaking to you. We should be delighting in him, praising him, praying to him, longing to see him, to know him more and more. Test yourself. Ask yourself, do I know the Lord? Is my fellowship with the Father and with his Son? My deepest prayer for you is that you do. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Music team, please come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you today for showing us the word which gives life. The word which existed from the very beginning, Yeshua. This divine word, this devar, uh, this logos, this, this memra. Thank you for showing us how biblical and how Jewish is the deity of Messiah. The divine word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Yeshua in you and in you alone is life. We want to know you, Yeshua. You are the creator, the bringer, the giver of life. Eternal life is knowing you. You are the life. Our deepest passion and desire is to know you more and more intimately. To walk with you, to be filled with your spirit. To have your life pulsating within us. And to share it with others. Lord Yeshua, today help us to know you to repent and to keep on repenting, to believe and to keep on believing, to love the things you love, to hate the things you hate, to be humble and broken and contrite before you, to want you more than the very air we breathe. Lord Yeshua, you command us to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith, to test ourselves. Let us ask ourselves, Are we breaking fellowship with you through our sin, through impurity, through lust, uh, through not loving our fellow brothers and sisters, uh, through through loving the world and its passions and priorities, uh, through denying your deity or your lordship? Lord, help us to run from these things and to cling to you, to walk in your divine life, so that finally it's no longer I who live, but it's you, Yeshua, who live in me. Help me to commune with you daily, to pour my heart out to you, Lord, like water, in prayer, and in worship, where my soul soars in your presence, and I'm lost in you, then my joy will truly be complete. And I pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.